Let's just further look to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this time together as we gather to look into your word. We acknowledge again that you alone are worthy of our praise, our adoration, our worship. But we also acknowledge that your Holy Spirit is that divine instructor that you've promised that he would guide us into all truth. And so we pray afresh and that as we look into your word, you may illumine our minds, quicken our spirits, open our hearts to receive the, the engrafted word which is able to save our souls. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Not too long ago, I was rummaging, as you sometimes do when you have rummage, um, and I was looking into uh, a scrap piece of paper in an envelope and noticed it was a, a letter dated 1999. I said, oh, what is this? And opened it up. It was a full-length letter from my mother and father. My mother is now with the Lord. So this was dated about eight years before. And uh, sat down and said, I must have forgotten this letter somewhere. And sat down and reread it. It was very comforting, very encouraging, reminding me of things that were happening in their lives. Perhaps you've had that opportunity. It's a, it's a fun experience to look at an old letter. Say, oh yeah, in that time of my life, this was what was going on. This is how they were active. This is how they were fighting the good fight. We look at the Bible, and most of it in the New Testament is a letter, a series of letters by different authors, John, Mark, Luke, Matthew, of course, Paul, writing a great number of the letters. Some, we don't even know exactly who wrote them. We believe they're inspired, like the book of Hebrews, but we really aren't sure which one the author. Some say Paul, others say Barnabas. Still others say we're not real sure, but... They are included. The fact is, though, they're letters. So what makes their letters that we have included in the Bible different from that letter that I picked up? I couldn't walk around to you and say, this is from God. But in Paul's message, Paul made it clear, even in the book of Thessalonians, in the chapter, first chapters of Thessalonians and later on, that this was really God's word. In fact, he claims it this way. First verse in, the, in this letter, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you could say that to me, but I wouldn't say that that was God speaking. I would say that you were reading First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.1. But Paul makes a bold assertion. He's saying, I am speaking the very words of God. That's pretty powerful. It's pretty audacious. It's pretty bold. I mean, in your face or what? I mean, what's he, what right has he got to say that he's speaking God's word? He doesn't do it just once, but he does it several times. In fact, in chapter 2.13, he puts it this way. We thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God which you heard from us. There he goes again, calling attention to himself. What right does this little short man have a right to say that he's speaking God's word? Well, that's what he says. And he says, you welcome it not as the word of men, but as in, it is in truth, the word of God. Why do we preach the word of God? Why do we preach the Bible? 
Why do we stick to what the Word says? Because it's God's message. It's not mine. I don't have a right to change it. I don't have a right to argue with it. I don't have a right to do anything else but defend it with my life. And you too. And that's why it's important. Paul claimed that to reject his word was to reject not him, but God. And that's found in 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 and 8. He who rejects this does not reject man, but God. And then again in... This one, a verse that gives us great hope as we look forward to that expectation. This is what he says in 1 Thessalonians 4.15. This we say to you by the word of the Lord. Now, I've been to meetings, perhaps you have too, where people are jumping up and saying, thus says the Lord. And you go, really? Like, that's the Lord speaking? Now, I think we have told Test the spirits. We need to be clear. God's word is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. But it's his word and his word alone. And so he says, This we say by the word of the Lord, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not by any ways precede those who are asleep. And he's talking about the coming of the return of Christ. And This whole service, this morning, we've been thinking about the Lord's coming. He could come before this service is completed. He could come this very second. That's how close his coming is. And Paul claimed to speak the word of the Lord. And finally, the last reference, he urged his letter to be read to all the holy brothers. And that's in 1 Thessalonians 5, 27 and 28. For those of you taking notes, I'll leave this on for a second. It's important. Why is it so important? Because think of how Paul's background was. When they would bring into the synagogue the Holy Scrolls, everyone would recognize that this was God's message. And Paul here is saying, when I send you a letter, this is as as much God's message as the very words of Moses from Genesis right through to Deuteronomy. That's powerful. I can't write a letter like that. You can't write a letter like that. But Paul, who said, all scripture is given by inspiration. It's God-breathed and is profitable. And so he claims over and over again to be speaking the very words of God in his letters. Now, did he write other letters? I'm sure he did. But those other letters did not remain And he never claimed that they were God's inspired word. And so why is this important? Well, because it's important because we need to realize that this little letter has five references to being the word of God. So we can't take it lightly. When the Jewish people would come into the synagogue and the reader of the word would stand up and read the word of God, everybody would bow either in their hearts or physically. And they would say, Amen, so be it. Let it happen. I trust and pray that as we take a look at this little passage today, we too will say, so be it. Amen. Let it happen. This first section of chapter 3 has got a really nice breakdown. Because there's only a few verses, some 13 verses, and... 
we can divide it up from verses 1 to 5. So let's read it together. As uh, I hope you're not opposed to reading from the New King James, but uh, if you have another version you want to read out of, out of sync, that's fine too. But let's read the first five verses together. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow labor in the gospel of Christ to establish you, encourage you concerning your faith so that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. For in fact, we told you that before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it has happened. And you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. Wow, powerful chapter, and it's a good thought. So, how's Paul spending his life? I was listening last week, or maybe two weeks ago, to Adrian Rogers. I just love him on KFM. I don't know if some of you like him too, but I just, he comes out with these things. And he said, in, in, by way of his introduction, you can tell what a person is or who a person is by three books. Of course, everybody's going, what? What's going on here? Three books? I thought there was just one book, the, the Bible. And he says, yeah, the Bible's the first book. But there's two other books that really tell who you are and what you are. First of all, there's your checkbook, <laughs> what you spend your money on. That tells who you are. If all your money is consumed on a certain area, you can say that's what you are. You know, if all your money is spent on athletics and sports, and you're a sports person. If all your money is spent on going on cruises, you're a cruiser. If all your money is being spent on your cottage, you're a cottager. That's who you are. That's your checkbook. The second part of that is your appointment book, how you spend your time. And if you look at how you spend your time, that's who you are. If you're going to jazzercise or if you're going to ballets or if you're going to, uh, to school functions or whatever occupies the most of that 168 hours. In fact, if you're a person that likes to sleep, you're a sleeper. That's who you are. I realize some of the teenagers sleep a little more when they're going through the growth spurt, so we're going to get, cut them a little slack on that one. So... Why do we ask? Why do we make a point of that? Well, Paul was an evangelist, a teacher, an apostle, but he didn't do it because he said, "You know what? When I was in grade three, I looked around and I saw those disciples, and I said, hmm, I want to be an apostle.' He didn't do that. He got struck down on the road." He was like a baseball player coming up to bat, getting up on the ninth inning of the the last of the ninth inning. The bases are loading. He's getting ready to, to fire that home run. He's got the ability to do it. He can throw the bat just like Jose. He knows what he's doing, and he can do it. And the ball comes down and smacks him right in the forehead. And down he goes. And when he gets up, he looks around. He takes off his shirt. He says, hey, I was playing for this team. I'm playing for them now. You know, that's sort of a picture of salvation. Because when you accept Christ into your heart in a true and living way, you're on another team. You've been playing for the devil. You've been playing for the world. You've been playing for yourself, the flesh. And now you're saying, no more of this. 
This is done. I'm quitting that team. I'm out of here. And Jesus is my captain. He's my savior. He's my guide. He's my leader. He's the one I follow. And his word is infallible and I trust it implicably. Paul, he was doing that. He'd gone from one direction and turned straight around 180 degrees and now he's going in the other direction. He was preaching the gospel. Wow. Can you imagine it? Anybody ever talk to somebody that's a, that's not the same team supporter as you are, you know? No. You know, I, I'm a Maple Leaf fan. I have to admit it. But I do so with my head bowed low. My dad says we're make-believes. But whenever I get into a discussion with uh, another team supporter, whether it be, you know, some people are Ottawa Senator supporters and some other people. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, Joey. <laughs> and some others are, are other supporters. Even in my own family, I have people supporting the Habs. I can't believe it. You know, like, what did I do wrong here? Like, but anyways, the point is this. If I was to sit down and try to convince them to be make-believe, I mean, Maple Leaf fans, um, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do You couldn't do it either if you have that view. Why? Because when you hold, that person holds that value, in, that's tight, close to their heart. That's what real faith is all about. When you're trying to convince somebody else to jump from the ship that's sinking, the Titanic's going down, and they're sitting on the deck of the Titanic, rearranging the deck chairs, and listening to some nice music on their Walkman, or their CD, or their iPod, or some other... Uh, known music force, and they're sitting around saying, oh, the, the chairs are tilting a bit, but I'm okay. I haven't fallen off yet. And you're trying to convince them that this ship is going down. You know what? Preaching the gospel is like that. It's an impossible task, but we're called to do it. All of us. You know, some are evangelists. Some have the gift of evangelism. But we're all called to go out into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of every nation, every Gentile. Paul was doing that. But look who he's sending. He's there and he's, he's really excited about the fact that the Thessalonians have, have really been going on for him. It's a new fledgling church. And what does he do? He sends young Timothy. We call Timothy Timid Timothy, because he's full of fear. So, does this make sense? Why didn't he go himself? Because Paul knew about passing on the baton, and I'm so thankful that he inscripted people who are capable of making mistakes, even in the process, young people who want to be in leadership, who want to serve. Don't be afraid of making mistakes. When Jesus set out the 70 on his first missionary trip, about a year and a half into the ministry, and he sent out 70 of them, two by two, do you think some of them made mistakes? I'll guarantee they did because they're humans just like you and I. So when God calls you to serve, don't be afraid of making mistakes. Just be afraid of trespassing the Lord's command on your life. Because we'll all make mistakes, but his grace is sufficient for each and every one. So Timothy was sent out. Now look at this passage in 1 Timothy. Now I'm going to not read it all, but just a portion of it. He talked to Timothy in another of his two letters. 
First and Second Timothy. But look what he says in verse 8. We know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing that this, that the law was not made for the righteous person, but for the lawless and the insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murders of fathers, murders of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjuries. And if there's anything else that's contrary to sound doctrine, you know what was happening? The early church was full of people who were coming around saying, grace has happened. We've been saved without works. Therefore, we can do anything we dog well want to do. If I want to hurt somebody, grace will cover it. If I want to defame somebody verbally, grace will cover it. If I want to steal from my brother, grace will cover it. All these things were being taught including ungodly action. And what does he say? The law hasn't changed, but Jesus fulfilled the law. And he goes into the book of Romans, and we've studied that before, so we can't get into that right now. But Timothy had a challenging job, but he sends him just the same. And so... When did he do this? Well, in this particular time, it was because he was concerned for their faith. He sends them back. He sends them back to encourage them, to talk to them, to share with them. And he says that now Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith. Good news of your faith and love and that you have a good remembrance of us. How would that be if uh, Timothy sat down with you this afternoon? I'm talking about the real guy. He's still around, but he's in glory. But let's just for a moment imagine that he comes and says, look, I got a mission from Paul. He told me to come and sit down with you over uh, Tim Horton's Coffee and Donuts and ask you how you're doing. How are you doing spiritually? Now, remember, I can see right through the problems that you've said you don't have. So I know how you're doing. But how are you doing? He says they had good news. Good news. They were standing for the Lord. In fact, the uh, translation that we have before us uh, says that they were, in fact, standing firm. Wow. Yes, Timothy says that you were doing well, you were persevering in the Lord, you were standing in the Lord. You know, the stand that we've called to be taking as Christians is a stand against the world. I'm sorry, but as much as we are called to live in the world, we are called to live outside of the world. That doesn't mean that we all become monks or join a monastery or become hermits, as much as some of us might like to do that. But rather, we are called to stand against the world and its ways. We are called to stand against the flesh. In 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul says, I discipline my body. Actually, King James says, I buffet my body. And uh, one of my brothers in the Lord he said to me after service one day, we're going to go to, uh, to a buffet, an all-you-can-eat buffet. I said, oh, that's wonderful. And uh, he said, yeah. He says, it's, it's scriptural too. Paul said he buffeted, buffeted his body. Well, I don't think that's exactly what Paul was talking about. But nevertheless, we are to stand against the flesh. We are to stand against the world and we are to resist or stand against the devil. James 4, 7 says that we are to humble ourselves, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from us. And Paul, his great goal, his great commission, 
was nothing other than to stand and press towards that mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And there in Philippians, he says that. I press towards the mark. He's, he's like a runner, running a race. Somebody once said, but I'm getting older. I'm now in my 40s. Uh, just wait till you get in your 60s or 70s. You know, are you running for Jesus? came across an interesting comment that we had in our Bible study on evangelism last week. You know, if you're 40 and you live to be 70, you have about 30, 30 years left. But that's only 1,500 weekends. We measure our time often in weekends, don't we? Now, if you're 50 years, you only have 1,000 weekends. If you're 60 years, you only have 500 weekends if you live to the age of 70. Now, average ages in Canada are going up, so I'm here to give you good news. The average age isn't 70 anymore. It's about 83, 85, uh, assuming you're average. (laughs) There's a few of us that are well well below average, and we exit out of here long before even the 70. The point is this. How much time have you got left to make a difference for Jesus? We need to get serious about the work of God as believers because far too much, and I'm speaking to myself as much as to anyone here, far too much time is wasted on self, on the flesh, and on pampering ourselves in one way or another. Paul was very concerned that the Christians would make sure that they were going forward and standing for Jesus Christ. He says in Ephesians 6, therefore stand. And he goes on to say that the, well I'm going to read it instead of just half quoting it here. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about our need to stand. And this um, it's a wonderful passage because he's already talked about our our seated in Christ, are seated in Christ. We have been seated in the heavenlies. And then he talks about our walk for Jesus. Walk in love, walk in truth, walk in, in, uh, in uh, obedience. And now he says, now stand therefore. Finally, brothers, be strong in the Lord. Verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6. And in the power of his might, put on the whole armor of God that he may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts in wicked forces in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness and shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. It takes effort to be ready to witness when God calls you to witness. We are waging a war, as we've been already hearing this morning. And that war is a unique war because it's invisible. And the visible enemies are not your enemies but the invisible ones are. We were driving through, I guess it was New York on our trip, and it was a real strange situation because we, we couldn't realize, figure out why the traffic was going so slow. Now, look, at every one of us has experienced slowdowns in traffic, right? We've all experienced that. 
and you all expect it. Those slowdowns in traffic are natural and nothing unusual about them. But something seemed a bit strange about this slowdown because we'd been just driving really quickly and then all of a sudden everything just comes to a bottleneck. And then the Lord reminded me that sometimes these slowdowns are not slowdowns that are natural, but they are spiritual slowdowns. And I started praying that God would push back whatever powers of darkness were holding this situation in, in check. And as we approached the passage of the cars that were seemingly slowing us down, I noticed this motorcyclist. At first, I thought a man was standing straight upright on the front bumper of his car, but it turns out that it was a motorcyclist who was hot-dogging and was driving his motorcycle back and forth in the front of the three or four lanes on his, like a unicycle. And he was doing this in the dark, and it was slowing everybody down, and I'm not sure exactly why. But as we approached him after having prayed that prayer, it's like he just turned around, he looked at me. I got a picture of him just before he turned and looked, and then he took off and exited it at the next exit, an exit 13, by the way. That's the number of rebellion, 13. And he exited there, and all of a sudden the traffic just opens right up again. And to this day, I will not know exactly what was going on there, but it's not been uncommon where there have been slowdowns, and then something happens, somebody gets impatient, and they create a massive bottleneck and a massive accident. I do believe that that was the one possibility that God kept us from. And thank you for your prayers for our safety as we traveled. So, what are we doing? We've got the stand that we need to stand for the gospel, and that's why we've been called to live by grace. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. The Lord Jesus talked a lot about the need for us to be followers of his. He just said, follow me. He does that today. We've heard so many times messages on being born again and that mystical experience that happens, really happens when you come face to face with Jesus and are truly brought into repentance and faith. But let me remind you, the harder part is following. Because that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where it makes the difference. And so Jesus oftentimes would use those, those same phraseology, just like the word disciple and Christian should be synonymous. I know in some places they say, oh no, I'm a Christian, but I sure am not a disciple. Well, the first Christians were called, the first disciples were called Christians. And so they were first disciples, then they were Christians. He spoke as at a radical new birth, we must be born again. But just that mystical experience of being born again should never be substituted for real life. Do you know that there are many religions in the world that have mystical experiences? Visions, hallucinations, trances, some drug-induced, but nevertheless, mystical experiences. So we must be clear, being born again is by the Word of God. The Word is what brings us into, and the Word is our anchor, and the Word is our source, and the Word is where we stand. And we come as little children. I love what the movie The Case for Christ brought out. As Lee Strobel was struggling... 
he came to his wife at the end of his investigation. He was an atheist, and he, he was an honest atheist. There's a few that are out there that really believe that if they could just see it, they would believe, but they're honest atheists. There's a lot of dishonest atheists. I'm sure of that. But the bottom line was he said, I get it. The evidence is overwhelming. The evidence is powerful. And he believed. And his wife was sharing with him at the, that time, and she said, yes, but did you receive? And John 1.12, but as many as believed him, received him, uh, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Believe, receive, become. Very important. Receiving Jesus is more than receiving theology. It's more than receiving a book and saying, thanks for the book, I'll follow it. No, it's receiving the God of this universe into your heart and submitting to him as your king and Lord and saying before him, I'm done with this nonsense because it's not worth it. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Do you know how you can tell whether you're really a believer or not? Are you a new creature? That's the bottom line. There's hundreds, if not thousands of people who sit in good, solid, evangelical churches who have got the theology up here. They've got the verbal confession here, but what they don't have is the Lord Jesus sitting in their heart, living out his love in their life. And they're struggling with all kinds of addictions. Why is there so much sin in the church? Because there's so many sinners. The mission is there The world is our mission, but the mission is here. God knows your heart. Are you a new creation? This verse really irked me when I was a professing Christian, but not a real Christian, because I would go, oops, nothing new there. Not hearing God speak. Are you a new creature? Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. This verse in Revelation 3.20 got a chance to share with a relative in Nova Scotia this past trip. It was such a delightful moment. And we said to our relative, this is what Jesus says. It didn't come out just like that. I mean, there were some introductions and discussions, so it wasn't as if we were just slamming the, the verse in her face. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him, will sup with him, and he with me. So if you happen to think of this person, please pray for her. She's very senior. Like if you think I'm senior, she's like 30 years beyond me. So she's very senior. We do not know how much time she has left. We want desperately for her to come to faith in Christ. And we left her with the case for Christ, hoping that she will, in fact, see that video and move further towards the Lord. So in the last part, chapter Uh, 3 verses 9 to 13, we have his prayer for personal intimacy. What thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy that we rejoice for the sake before our God night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face. I'm sorry, but I just haven't got that kind of love in my heart as yet, but I want to have that love where that love doesn't just go to my own immediate family and my spouse, but it also goes out to the family of God. Paul, long to, you know, if you're waiting for a family member 
and they're coming in on the air flight and that you haven't seen them for a long time. Boy, that's an exciting moment, isn't it? But would you get that excited if it was somebody from this church was just coming in? I don't think so. Good, good. I'm glad to hear there are a few. We need to love one another fervently. That is the kind of love that goes beyond just our immediate family. Intimacy. What else? Make up what is lacking. Whoops. You mean there's lacking things in our lives? Absolutely. We're not there yet. We have the relationship with the God of this universe. We have the new life. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Word of God. But you know what we don't have? We don't have perfection in all those areas. You know, you start working on one area. You seem to think, oh, it's coming pretty good, you know. And another area pops up in your life and you go, "Uh uh-oh, didn't expect to see that one. You know, I'm working on uh, keeping humble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And until, until something happens, you go, whoa, you know, and that's not a humble action, humble reaction. The Lord Jesus inspired Paul to say this as well. He wanted to make us increase. Get big. No, not big like, you know, fat, big. He wanted to see the whole church grow. My my prayer is that every one of those empty seats that are here today will be filled with people who love Jesus and want to serve him. Is that your prayer? I know it is for many of us here. We want to see the church grow. And I'm a great believer that what we're doing here is amazing because God is amazing. And not only to grow and get larger, but abound in love to one another. Abound in love. Not just have, oh, I love your brother, I love your sister, but abound. Go that extra mile. And then finally, establish your hearts blameless in holiness. What an amazing prayer that he has at the end. Could you make a prayer like that for the believers here in this church? That you want to see others improve in their Christian walk, to grow in their dedication for Christ, to increasingly become more loving and caring, and to be more holy. You know, being more holy establishes what? That there is unholiness. And there are standards. In today's church, unfortunately, we have no standards as a Western church. We ha- anything goes attitude. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible is clear. There are things we do because the Word of God says we do them. And there are things we don't do. And we need to read the Word of God and obey it. And so... These are just some of the random thoughts that I've come out of chapter 3. I hope it's blessed you. And uh, we're going to call up the rest of the song group to finish off our time in, uh, in a hymn. And then we're going to ask Phil if he'd lead the singing and uh, close us with prayer, if he would, please. Let's pray together. Dear God, our Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have had to gather together And be in your presence, be in the presence of your Holy Spirit, guiding us and teaching us, helping us to worship you in the way that we ought, and in the presence of your word that speaks to our minds and our hearts, all that you want us to know and to be. We just pray that you would impress on us as we go from this place the things that you have laid on our hearts and minds as spiritual challenges as priorities, as things we need to know and have not yet understood. We just pray that you'd go with us, and we know that you will, as our shepherd, 
leading us and guiding us in a way that would bring you all the glory and bring many others into your kingdom through their salvation and through their commitment to you in response to your love. Father, we thank you for the amazing grace that you have bestowed upon us that we should be your children. Help us to live as such. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.